Welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast and to part three of the School of Golf Architecture. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Bdratty. Bdratty.com has a fantastic range of handsome, comfortable, incredibly well-made clothing. I'd particularly recommend the long-sleeve Willy Crew Neck Tee, which is ideal for lounging around the house, as well as taking a brisk morning walk, as well as going for a grocery run, basically all the things we're doing today. It's just really, really comfortable, and it looks sharp, so it can adapt to all sorts of different situations. So go to bdratty.com and use our exclusive promo code TFE25, that's TFE25, and get 25% off your purchase. You can use the same promo code at the Zero Restriction website. If you enjoy what we're doing here at the Fried Egg, this is a great way to support us. All right, School of Architecture, part three. My tutor today is Riley Johns, and our topic is tie-ins, or the craft of melding a golf course with its surroundings. It was really fun talking to Riley, who's one of the brightest minds in golf architecture today. So, let's just get to it. Fried egg requires a different technique. What you need to do is actually square the face so it'll dig down underneath that bad lie and propel that ball right out onto the green. Here's the thing, playing out of a buried lie in a bunker is completely different than playing out of a nice, clean lie in a greenside bunker. You need to be aggressive on any shot, whether it's sitting cleanly or it's a uh, fried egg. Well, we've all faced it, the dreaded fried egg. It's not to be feared though, it's actually a pretty easy shot to hit. It takes a lot of effort to appear effortless. How that old chestnut applies to golf course design is our subject in this edition of the School of Golf Architecture. When I started building this series, I didn't exactly have a plan. It's like I'm playing with a set of old school Legos, just connecting one piece at a time and hoping that I'll end up with something cool. But looking back, I realized that the first three installments actually concentrate on the same theme the relationship between a golf course and its setting. First, I talked to Blake Conant about place. Next, I spoke with George Waters about Lynxland. And today, Riley Johns and I zero in on the spot where a golf course and its environment meet. Architects and shapers do a lot of work there. The goal is usually to create tie-ins, or features that mediate between new man-made forms and pre-existing ones. On a completely natural golf course, if such a thing exists, tie-ins would not be necessary. The holes would already be tied in. They would be no different from the land itself. But the more that golf course builders alter the terrain, the tougher it is to reunite the holes with their surroundings. Today, tie-ins have become especially important in golf course construction. Modern architects, even ones known to revere the lay of the land, move a great deal of earth. At the same time, more and more clients are asking for courses that appear at home in their environments. Give me another Sand Hills, another Pacific Dunes. So if you spend any time around today's golf course builders, you will hear them talk about tie-ins frequently. To outsiders though, it's a somewhat mysterious topic. What exactly do tie-ins look like? How do you make them? What are they supposed to do? To learn more, I reached out to Riley Johns. 
Riley has helped build some of the 21st century's most harmonious golfing grounds with Bill Corr and Ben Crenshaw, Tom Doak, Jim Urbina, and Rod Whitman. In 2013, he founded Integrative Golf Design, and in 2016, he and Keith Reb renovated the municipal Winter Park 9 in Florida. That course now meshes with its community in a mutually beneficial, mutually beautifying way. More recently, Riley and Keith designed a 10-hole short course at Forest Dunes and began a restoration of William Flynn's Rolling Green. Earlier this week, Riley snuck out to his office in downtown Canmore, Canada to let me in on the secrets of the tie-in. Just in the simplest terms, what is a tie-in? How would you define it? I would define a tie-in as uh, it's where uh, the manufactured meets the natural uh, or meets its surrounds, its immediate surrounds. It's, you know, the, that's a tie, the act of tying in is, is more of the intentional blending or adaptation of one's work with the immediate surrounds. So there's kind of a, an interplay on, on the two. You know, in golf, we would, we would simply just say fitting the hole into place. And are there different types of tie-ins? Are there like categories? The, the one that jumps to mind right out of the gate, which, which would be the obvious one, would be a physical tie-in. And that would be, you know, connecting topographical elevations or grades, uh, landforms, uh, mimicking landforms, grassing lines. You, you can tie those two together. Uh, but yeah, I would say there's different kinds of tie-ins. I would say you could have, you know, you have their physical, environmental, and visual tie-ins. Visual tie-ins is a big one for golf course design. But you could have a cultural tie-in, a historical tie-in, a spiritual tie-in. I listened to the podcast you did with Blake, and you guys were talking about space and place. You know, there's a similarity there. You could you could almost say that uh, that discussion, you were talking about cultural and historical tie-ins. You know, you could say like a historical tie-in would be the old course at St. Andrews and the, the uh, built environment, the town, the structures, the steeples of the buildings and the streets and, the, and that part of the property and tying that uh, not just visually in, but from a, from a historical point of view, you know that as you approach the town on, your ba- on the way back in, uh, you know you're walking in the same footsteps that historically every great golfer that's ever walked to earth has done. I'm curious about all those categories that you just went over, but maybe we can start with the the physical or the visual. It sounds like you would draw a distinction between physical and visual. What what would that distinction be between a physical and a visual tie-in? Well, a visual would be uh, background, right? The backdrop of a golf hole. Yeah, horizon lines are, are critical. We work really hard on making sure our horizon lines don't clash with the inherent horizon lines of the backdrop. Um, either you want to accent views, focus views, uh, or even obscure views, but it's all about framing the picture. An environmental tie-in, which would be a bit more of like vegetation, we would work really hard on making sure that the color and the texture and the uh, composition of how the uh, native landscapes and textures and colors integrate with the turf and the golf components. But typically the three go hand in hand in unison uh, and they're not mutually exclusive either. So physical, environmental, and visual. 
you're kind of tying those three things together all the time when you're creating uh, a golf hole. So what is the importance of that kind of work? What is the importance of making that interface particularly hidden or graceful in some way or artful to the golfer's experience? Well, I think, first of all, humans inherently find landscapes that are easy on the eyes, uh, look effortless. We find those pleasing. It's a human nature. I don't know. You'd have to talk to a psychologist about why. But uh, <laughs> I think um, I think the importance of tines is both visual and from an aesthetic perspective, but also functional. You know, visually, a tines help kind of conceal the work that has taken place. It, and properly tied in landscapes are they're easy on the eyes. They should appear effortless and seamless. If done properly, no one will ever comment on how good your tie-ins are because they won't know. They don't exist, right? They they should just they should just be non-existent. Is is the idea behind them? But if poorly done, you know that disconnection will be forever. It'll be baked into design forever. You know, a, a, a good a good tie-in makes your work difficult to distinguish where you started and, and where you ended uh, with the project. You know, it, it, it kind of completes the entire landscape picture and it makes it look more plausible as if nature herself created it, you know, or you found it yourself, right? You're kind of always trying to emulate and mimic nature and the tie-ins is, is, the, is a very critical part in, in, in doing that. You know, uh, functionally, tie-in is very important because, uh, you know, a thoughtful tie-in allows the, the landscape to function as it did prior to your alterations. George C. Thomas had a great quote where he said, in golf course construction, art and utility meet. Both are absolutely vital. One is absolutely ruined without the other. And I think he's kind of talking to the idea of the functional component of tie-ins with your work. For instance, if you have a natural swale that intersects a proposed golf hole that you're going to build, it's an inherent feature of the landscape. And your job is to riff off of it, to play off of it, to utilize it and to be inspired by it. And um, by mimicking that swale in the golf hole, you're maintaining its relationship with the golf hole. If you filled in the swale or if you blocked or dammed that swale prior to it, say, coming into the golf hole and exiting the golf hole, you know, that would be considered a poor tie-in because it's all of a sudden contrived. It's unnatural. And not only that, you're blocking the functionality of it, which is a conduit for water potentially and creating an issue. And so all of a sudden things become unbalanced, right? And so that's, that's where I think the importance of a tie-in is. It's both in a visual and aesthetic, but also a functionality component to it. Can you remember a hole that you worked on or even an entire course that you worked on where the tie-ins were particularly challenging? Any course that where the uh, natural lay of the land is so stunning and so distinct and, and so uh, beautiful, it's hard to recreate that. Just do the nature of the construction process. You end up destroying a lot of it. You try not to, but you know sometimes you need a haul road to access an area for materials or you know whatever the situation may be. Sometimes you have to massage shapes into the landscape to fit a green or tee or bunker or what have you. And so the idea is, after this destruction of the natural landscape, 
how do we reconstruct it? How do we put Humpty Dumpty back together again? So that's, that's the hardest part when you have an already inherently complex, rich textures, colors, you know, a landscape that's evolved in that particular spot to its microclimate over a hundred years. You can't necessarily create that in a month. But, uh, you know, an example that jumps out to me is uh, when we were working at Cabot Cliffs and uh, Hole 2, there was a, a big hillside that was covered in trees. And the, uh, the process of removing and grubbing those trees essentially uh, denuded and just destroyed that, that hillside. And so we had to figure out how to shape some tees in there, but then tie it back into the natural looking dunescape. And so what we did was we took uh, sand, uh, the, the, the native sand, some marum grass, some logs, some wood, some brushes, some brush, some, some, some different native vegetation. Uh, we call it chunking, where you take uh, scoops of, of native material from elsewhere on site and you replace it places that you've worked or you plug it into places where you've worked to give it the most visual impact. It'll eventually grow in and spread and propagate itself. So what we had to do was, was essentially create a massive faux dune to conceal the work we had to do in order to build two tees at Cabot Cliffs. Uh, and so it took a lot of, uh, we had two excavators. We had to flip sand up to the other excavator. That's how high of a hill this was, right? There was no sand on it. And we had to create what we then called Frankendune. It was a, uh, <laughs> we were waiting for a lightning strike and it was going to come alive. We joked and, um, <laughs> the idea. And then we let the wind hit it. We let the natural elements start to kind of do their thing. And we created a fake giant dune to uh, hide the work that had to go on in order to build the tees at Cabo Cliffs. So that's, that's an example, an extreme example of us playing off the natural uh, surrounds and trying to bridge and connect the gap between what we had to create and what was existing. And, um, and we had to choose what element that was going to be because we could have done, you could do anything, right? You could, you could replant trees, you could just hydroseed it with some fescue grass, you could uh, just let it be and see what native plants reemerge. And, and so you have to make those decisions on, on what's your theme, what's your inspiration, and, and then go for it and create it. I mean, um, you know, we're, we're, we're faking nature. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the nature fakers. Yeah, that, that's, that's, right. that's such a great story. And part of what strikes me about it is that you built this landform this dune and it's very hard to build dunes that look valid right we we've all seen courses where there are these kind of faux, faux dunes that just look like normal containment mounds and, and they don't look very cool and and they disrupt the tie-ins of of the course throughout so you built this dune but toward the end of the process it seems like this was a key part of the process you allowed nature to go to work on the feature you didn't fix it in place. You allowed wind and the elements to shape the form that you made so that presumably it started to look a little bit more like what was around it. Do I have that right? That's exactly it. You have to let nature have her hand in it because she's the one, she's the ultimate artist at the end of the day, right? So we just try to get the elements in place, the, the materials in place, set it up that works for our purpose, which is golf. But at the end of the day, Mother Nature is going to take over anyway and, and do her thing. And, um, you know, nature is destruction. It is random. It is chaotic. 
So if we're in there trying to beautifully place what in our human mind we think is the ideal bunker, well, we're missing the whole purpose of it. Uh, sometimes um, you know, creative chaos is, is your best approach to mimicking nature. So Cabot Cliffs is obviously this spectacular, huge scale landscape with all sorts of natural gifts as well as natural challenges to the construction of a golf course. But it but it's big and it's spectacular. Maybe we could talk about your approach to tie-ins at a very different property in Winter Park where you had a city course that kind of winds through a neighborhood is more or less flat. So when you were rebuilding features there, rebuilding the greens, building new bunkers, rebuilding bunkers, how did you think about tying in the course to its surroundings? Because they weren't all natural surroundings, right? They were, there, there's a lot of neighborhood there. Did you think about tying the course into, into that? Well, that's, that's all we had, right? Uh, there was no nature, natural, environmental bounty of colors and textures and, and uh, landscape. It was, it was human-built form. Um, we had to tie in with city infrastructure. You know, physically, we had to tie in the city infrastructure, whether that be an electrical transformer box, the, the sidewalk, the street curb, the drip line of existing trees that were to remain, historic trees. You know, so that was the physical tie-in, which certainly was a lot different. Uh, typically, you would love to be able to uh, draw out or string out your tie-ins. The tighter of a box that you're placed in, the more difficult it is to tie in. Whereas if you're on a, an 18-hole golf course like Cabot Cliffs or something, you can literally tie in something you know, for 30 yards if you need to. Winter Park, we did not have that luxury because we were bound by the street corners and the curbs and the shape of the of the blocks of the street. Um, so there was certainly a, a different tie-in. In our our constraints were given to us. We weren't able to knock down a curb or move a sidewalk or change things significantly. So our only tie-ins that we could could do, other than tying in physically to the streetscape, was visual corridors, was experiential tie-ins, was community and culture, and, and those things we kind of discussed before. We we wanted to open up different views to structures, uh, whether that the church or the grave, uh, you know, the cemetery, the main street to people walking on the street on the on the sidewalk to also open up the viewing corridors in the opposite direction because we're always thinking about oh what's the golfer's perspective the golfer's perspective but in winter park was a it was a weird animal because we were also cognizant of the other people's perspective the people commuting driving by the people walking their dog down the street the people biking by we wanted to give them the experience of the golf course without having to play it so another example at winter park would have been uh before we'd got there, there was a uh, an entire uh, cluster of trees uh, uh, hiding the uh, train tracks. And so we felt like rather than denying the train tracks, rather than camouflaging, hiding and concealing them, let's embrace it and bring it into the golf course uh, physically and and visually. So what we did was we cleared all those trees and we, we tied the golf course into the train tracks uh, rather than trying to hide them. And if you stand on six T's today and you see a train going by, 
it'll appear as if the train is driving on top of the golf holes. It'll, we visually tried to connect the grade and the train tracks in a way that your perspective gave the illusion that the train was floating on top of the, the grass. <laughs> right. Awesome. And so those are just, the, those are just the little nuances of tying in. We wanted to tie in the fact that historically and culturally, this train track, this train system was instru- instrumental in the creation and development and success of winter park as a community. And so there's the historical tie in, right. And so now people can, they have a connection with the train tracks, with the golf course, the community, and visually they all kind of get bridged together. And, you know, audibly, you can hear the train whistle, right. You can hear the train whistle from different parts of the golf course. So, so all of these kind of things do tie in to create a sense of place like you and Blake were talking about, but also gives the site and the golf course a bit more of a distinct DNA to it. It's a more distinct product at the end of the day. It's more memorable. There's more intrigue. There's more interest. There's more, there's more layers of flavor to the golf experience. And that at the end of the day is, is really the objective of, of all of this. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's a beautiful idea where you have brought the course closer to the community and made it feel more a part of the community and that's something I think that a lot of us want out of our neighborhood courses where it, where it doesn't seem like something apart, but rather just as much a component of the community as a town square or a restaurant or a movie theater. There's the golf course as well, and it's part of the town. It's not a separate section. Now, I think that's a, a wonderful idea, but does it sometimes come into conflict with questions of safety? Because obviously one of the big ways that you can accomplish visual tie-ins between a neighborhood golf course and the surrounding neighborhood is by removing trees. When you remove trees, there's a sense that, you know, perhaps not an accurate sense, but at least some people would suspect that golf balls would more easily travel from the golf course to places that you don't want them to go off the golf course. So was there ever some tension in your renovation of winter park between tie-ins and safety. Yes. I mean, that was, that was something that we brought up right away and we just made it clear that inherently this golf course is dangerous. (laughs) (laughs) Basically, look, we're inheriting a golf course next to streets and we can't move the streets, the housing, the people walking there, the I can't control how people hit their golf ball, what they, you know, there's too many factors. So we just, made sure that we covered our butts and just said, look, this is an inherently dangerous golf course. We're going to do our best to help prevent and mitigate any sort of conflicts. Safety is something that we're definitely going to try to design into it. When we were designing it and in the field, we made sure that we angled tee boxes in a way that hopefully directs the play a little bit away from the streets. You know, we, we were very aware that we didn't want to put bunkers necessarily where if you scald your shot it would shoot directly into the street or mm. across the sidewalk so yes we we were very aware of the safety component in our design we felt reflected those concerns as best as we possibly could without sacrificing you know without putting up a fence and nets and you know doing all these alternative means of protecting people's safety through those kind of measures. So it was, it's tricky, but yeah, no, that's a, it's a concern, but sure. what can you do? Right. Well, <laughs> I mean, yeah, if you're going to have a golf course there, then sometime, sometimes yeah. there are going to be some wayward shots. 
So we've talked about a couple of courses that you've worked on. Maybe we could talk about some courses that you've seen, some that you admire. Can you think of any courses that people might know about that you think have particularly exceptional tie-ins, whether they're recently built courses or ones from 100 years ago? Which courses come to mind when you think of excellent tie-ins? The one that jumps to mind just immediately, and, and it jumps to mind because of how they flip the script on this particular golf courses in terms of its genre of tie-in would be Piner's number two. Before the tie-ins used to be turf and trees, right? And when Bill and Ben went in there and, and did their restoration work, all of a sudden it became wire, grass, sand, and pine needles, right? It had a fully different feel to it, different texture, different plants. So that's now we're getting into the physical, the environmental, the visual. I think those tie-ins are, are spectacular because it was created by man, right? But it took its cues from the Carolina sand belt and the pines and the uh, and the different vegetation of that area. So I think I think Piners number two has beautiful tie-ins. And then um, uh, Heathland courses in England, they do a really good job of tying their golf course in with the natural surround using heather as the primary element of, of glue, so to speak, to connect those two things. Once again, you got your color, your texture, your, you know, your vegetation and all these different things, you know, which at the end of the day, you know, design is, it's all the same, whether you're designing a house or a golf course or, or anything or a car for that matter everyone uses the same design elements to achieve whatever they're trying to achieve. And so that's perspective, line, you know, line, form, color, texture, repetition, emphasis, balance, variety, scale, symmetry, all of those things are design tools, elements that you can use when trying to conceal your work or connect your work or tie in your work. And so a lot of the tie-ins that we're talking about here whether that was Piner's number two or the Heather uh, in the Heathland courses, a lot of that is, uh, you know, form and color and texture, but you know, Royal Dornick's another example, right? They ties in using gorse and it gets a connecting thread throughout the entire uh, property. Uh, Royal Melbourne and, and the Sandbelt courses in Australia, they tie into their existing landforms in, in a way that's distinct to the Sandbelt, right? You know, Cypress Point, ties in with the Monterey Peninsula in a way that, it, you know, that's why that course just has that spiritual, now we're getting into the spiritual component, but the way that the golf course ties into the rocks, the ocean, the way that the bunkers, the form of the bunkers mimic the form of the cypress trees, right? And how all of these things all of a sudden start interplaying with each other in a way that makes that golf course or any of these golf courses we just discussed fit into their landscape, fit into their home in a way that looks completely seamless as if no one moved a spoonful of dirt. Um, Sand Hills, Nebraska, right? They didn't go with Kentucky bluegrass and get it all vibrant green. They went with fescues and the fescues bleed into the fairway and bleed out of the fairway. You know, the golf course looks found and discovered the way that the sand scabs of those bunkers you know, splash using the wind. They look like they were created by the, by the wind. And, uh, you know, those tie into the character and the patterns of, of the area of the region of the, of the uh, entire Sandhill region. So, you know, it's all of these kind of different elements go in as layers. And it's almost like you go into a golf course project first stripping layers away 
and then you go build the golf course and then you start bringing the layers back you start melding them together it's it's almost like you're 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 cooking right you add a little bit of ingredients here a little bit there so you know you want to get a little bit of color and texture there it moves your eye this way and maybe you want to get that horizon line of that bunker over there so it Maybe you can use it to obscure a building or an unsightly view that you don't want. Or maybe that bunker needs to feed into the shoulder of an existing hill that's emerging out of the trees. And so you, you play off of that existing landform. You, you use accents from the landforms all around you. And then you, you place the golf element in there and then you blend the two together. And so as you go to completing the golf course, you slowly start getting that balance and that variety and that, that scales right and all these different textures and colors and then it comes all the way down to the maintenance where then the grassing lines are another big component of tie-in right you can go from a sand hills or a, or a pinehurst number two like we just discussed where the grass and the edges of the uh, the sand scrapes seem to bleed uh with each other right giving you this harmonious kind of feel to the to the landscape as if it was inherently always there, but then you could use desert golf as the antithesis to that exact theory of, well, now we have a landscape that's dry and arid and brown and, and dusty and all these different, and then you have this green lush golf course, and usually the, the line is hard, right? Not very often you can blend those two for environmental factors. You know, one requires water, water one doesn't have any water, but but that's where you could go to the extreme on the spectrum of almost blatantly accepting that there is no tie-in or we're not going to even attempt to tie-in. We're going to delineate a hard line and that's going to be our design element. That's the form that we want to express. And so that, that hard line of a green lush fairway and then a stark line where there's brown desert, that's a conscious decision of no tie-in. So the different sites call for different modes of tying in. Sure. Yeah. Now, now you've obviously been influenced by the people that you've worked with. And a few times in our conversation, we've mentioned Corin Crenshaw and Corin Crenshaw always come up as kind of the gold standard of executing tie-ins. The, the detail work just seems to be really under control at all of their courses where the course never really feels like it's been imposed on the landscape. It always feels like it blends. So I'm curious as somebody who's worked for that firm, worked with Bill and Ben, what did you learn from them about approaching this part of the craft? I think it all begins with the routing. The reason they're able to tie in their golf courses uh, in such an effortless looking presentation is because they got the routing right from day one. Uh, so finding golf holes that will naturally sit topographically is right then and there that gives you the possibility to tie it in, right? Where if you're forcing it onto a piece of ground, your tie-ins all of a sudden become much more difficult. You know, I think for them, they just, they celebrate the diversity in the landscape and they elevate it and they don't mute it or, or sanitize it. And that's the key, right? And so, but I think at the end of the day, Bill and Ben, they just, they've studied this craft for so long and they know how important it is to get those details right. Anything that's kind of forced or contrived is just less appealing to the human eye, to the, to the experience. I, I don't know what it is that we humans like about a beautifully 
flowing, connected, harmonious landscape, but we do. And so that's all we're trying to do is, you know, we know as a species, we like this. It gives us pleasure making the golf hole look naturally in place in its site is something that we tend to value sure. as golfers. And I don't, I don't know yeah. why, what do you think? Why, yeah, well, why do we, why do we value that? Right. I, yeah. I, well, as you were, as you were asking that question, I was thinking, I wonder like if, uh, if an evolutionary neuroscientist could answer this question for us, right? Is there something deeply encoded in our humanity that responds well to a natural landscape and to man-made forms that blend in with the natural landscape? I think there probably is, you know, because I think that humans are pretty good, maybe not as good at as other animals at this, but humans are pretty good at picking out the unnatural just in the way that when animation or special effects try to mimic the human face, we're really good at picking out, Hey, that's wrong. That's fake. We're maybe not as good with the landscape, but I think there's a similar reaction that we might have where we see something that doesn't fit in a landscape that doesn't register as natural. And we say immediately, yep, that's BS. That's fake. I don't like that. That, that makes me feel a little bit queasy. There's a, there's a, an effect of the uncanny where, um, where, where it just doesn't, it doesn't feel right. I don't know. Does it, does that resonate with, with you at all? Well, that's or, yeah. Well, so in landscape architecture, there's, there's all sorts of, you have your design principles, but then you also have your uh, kind of set theories or, or uh, uh, you know what you'd want to call it, but basically it's, uh, you know, you got your, you guys talked about space and place, right? And then you have form versus function, right? Uh, you have um, conceal and reveal, compression and release. You know, in golf, we have strategic and penal, right? And, and then one of the ones in landscape architecture is called prospect refuge. And the theory behind that one is, is we, you know, at the dawn of human civilization, we preferred the savanna as our, uh, as our home, as our, as our hunting grounds, as our, you know, the ecotype that we preferred as a species. And the theory behind it is the savanna, you have the prospect in front of you up underneath the canopy of the trees. And then you have the refuge of the trees behind you. So it's kind of a blend between, you know, in, in old stories, the dark woods was always a theme, right? The dark woods. And that's the savanna too. That's too close, right? The Hansel and Gretel uh, of, of it's scary. It's dark. It's mystical. It's unknown. It's dangerous. You get all these kind of different feelings out of a dark forest where an open prairie, you also get a feeling of where do I run to hide if I need to? Where's my protection? Where's my uh, refuge? And so the savanna bridges those two. This is the theory, at least the, the savanna bridges those two together in a perfect combination, a mixture of prospect and refuge. And that's why we like parks so much, right? Because we have it's sparsely planted trees. We have the prospect and we have the refuge and it inherently makes us feel comfortable. And if that is a theory that actually holds water, maybe that's why golf courses are something that we enjoy experiencing. But also people who don't necessarily even golf will look at a golf course photo and go, that gives me comfort, you know, whatever that feeling is. And maybe it goes all the way back to our uh, homo sapien days. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's, that's fascinating. And, and it opens up all these ways in which an architect can 
play with the emotions of a golfer very subtly by making them feel insecure at certain points and then offering security at other points in in a routing of a golf course right if if that's, we if we feel exactly comfortable it. in landscapes where where there's there, there's some opportunity for refuge as well as a prospect then that's a great thing for an architect to know because when I'm plunging you deep into the woods, you're going to feel a, a little bit weird. And when I'm throwing you out onto a huge open space where there's nothing to hang on to, then you're going to feel a little bit weird there too. And, and so, you know, kind of just as jazz musicians know that we don't like dissonance and that we want it to be resolved, golf architects could, could play with the same type of emotion in, in golfers that's it right and and uh and then golf at, so now you take that's just the landscape right we're just talking tie-ins and how do we make that landscape believable how do we make it look plausible that nature created this and we just mowed it out and put a pin flag there and called it done right but then you add this element of golf is a art piece that's meant to be played experienced and interacted with right so now you have this you know deception it's planned confusion and so we're now we're sprinkling planned confusion and, and deception and, and illusion and warped perspectives and, uh, you know, visual emphasis and all these kind of tricks of landscape design to make the golfer react or imagine or think or do something that is perhaps we're subtly or passively uh, nudging a golfer in a certain direction or doing something to their state of mind subconsciously they're not quite sure of but that's where you know the design components of building a hazard or deception and all those things and then tying those in to the landform now gives it that believability and now now you have this adventure on a planned landscape that looks like it was found and there's something about that that gives us immense pleasure So tie-ins deliver pleasure through deception. They fool us into believing that the planned landscape was found and that our golfing adventure belongs to that old genre of man versus nature. And we might know we're being hoodwinked, but we're too delighted to be offended. That's the idea anyway, and it reminds me right away of Alistair McKenzie. The chief object of every golf architect or greenkeeper worth his salt, he says in his 1920 book, Golf Architecture, is to imitate the beauties of nature so closely as to make his work indistinguishable from nature itself. Further along in the book, Mackenzie goes into the mechanics behind nature fakery. He makes a famous analogy between building golf courses and building military earthworks. Through his service in the Second Boer War and World War I, Mackenzie became an expert in camouflage, designing fortifications that blended in with the terrain. The parallels to his style of golf architecture offered themselves readily. Successful golf course construction and successful camouflage, he writes, are almost entirely due to the utilization of natural features to the fullest extent and to the construction of artificial ones indistinguishable from nature. He was, in other words, creating tie-ins. For Mackenzie, tie-ins were all about deception. Deceive the enemy to defeat him. Deceive the golfer to delight him. It's true that a man-made landform in, in harmony with a natural one brings us pleasure. Conversely, when the man-made clashes with the natural, we may feel uncomfortable. 
Since golf should be pleasurable, it stands to reason that courses should, as Mackenzie puts it, imitate the beauties of nature. At the same time, discomfort is a powerful tool for any artist. Comedians are masters of it, just as jazz musicians are masters of dissonance. And any good storyteller knows how to unsettle us, how to give us alternating experiences of tension and release. So why shouldn't golf architects do the same with tie-ins? At one moment, they could draw attention to the artificiality of their work. At the next, they could provide the comforting release of camouflage. I don't know, maybe this idea is more fun to babble about on the podcast than it is to put in the ground. But it interests me because the future of golf course design is a big question mark right now. Bill Corr and Tom Doak are in the fourth decade of their careers, and the many talented architects they've trained, like Riley Johns, are starting to get major jobs. Where will this new generation take the craft? How will they differentiate themselves from their mentors or from the heroes of their mentors? It's possible that some of them will decide that imitating the beauties of nature is not, in fact, their chief object. If you want to dig deeper into tie-ins, I've put together a post for this episode on thefriedegg.com. It has photos, resources, and some extras from my conversation with Riley. You can also connect with me on Twitter at gfordgolf, with Riley at integrativegolf, and with the fried egg at the fried egg with underscores between each word. Let's keep the discussion going. <laughs> 